Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. With me today is Thierry de Roland Peel. Now Thierry has written a book, Ashes from Anan, which tells a terrific story about a family survival in Saigon at the end of World War II. Thierry has also spent 30 years in Cambodia. He was invited into the country by King Norodom Sihanouk to participate in post-war reconstruction, and he has many stories to tell. Thierry, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Luke, and thank you very much for inviting me to my first podcast. (laughs) First, I'm sure it'll be first of many. Let's walk through the book first. Ashes from Anam, it's a story that was told to you by your mother, and it's a lovely read. It's also about a dog, Mephisto, and how the family dog came to the rescue of the family at an incredibly important point in the 20th century. Take us through. Yes, indeed. I mean, basically, it's uh, a family story. It's the French side of my family uh, in Saigon in the fall of 1945. Um, Of course, Vietnam itself did not exist at that time. There were three entities. One was Koh Shanxin, Anam, and Tonkin. Vietnam wasn't started till March 1945 by Emperor Bao Dai. But the story is about the family during the Second World War, uh, under Japanese occupation, and the trials and tribulations that that meant for uh, a European family in in Asia. And they were plantationers? And yes, in, uh, cousin had a plantation, a rubber plantation, and others were involved in business. And also uh, there was one uncle who happened to be uh, a court uh, register in Phnom Penh. So the family itself has been in the area since 1887. And uh, the story of my book, which is Ashes from Manam, is about the family uh, during the end of uh, 1945 under Japanese occupation and how they survived. And the fact that my mother had her dog with her led to another interesting story which remains unresolved to this day. But the dog was an asset for the family in terms of keeping the family together and uh, for existing a day-to-day life when they never knew whether they were going to live the next day or not. So the idea of the book was to explain really what the family went through and what the dog did to help for the family to survive. And at that point at war's end, uh, the front lines were changing continually. Uh, There was the Vichy French and then uh, Leclerc arrived, the British had arrived, the Americans were further up north, the communists were coming out to reassert themselves or to assert themselves in a bid to end French colonialism and establish their own independence. They had all these warring factions uh, yeah. happening at the same time and that meant constant changing front lines where, as I understand it, uh, the family home was smack dab in the middle. Well, yes, uh, I think the important issue uh, overall is that the Japanese, once they realized that they were losing the war, they then sort of concentrated a lot in terms of um, creating independence of countries and nationalism, so anti-colonialism. So, in fact, you see, by the end of the war, they'd already started 
exciting the local population to go against their colonial masters. And so this is where we saw the emergence of the Viet Minh in Saigon in 1945 and the problems that ensued in Saigon when there were the massacres and all the rest of it because the Japanese were no, lo no longer in control. Right. And there were a lot of massacres. I understand at least 300 French plus, people alone mm. plus were slaughtered. Yes. And it really came to a head when a Catholic priest was uh, killed outside the cathedral. Oh, there was that and many others. Of course, there were French families buried alive, children buried alive in front of their parents or vice versa. Um, you know, they were horrific. And in fact, within uh, the family itself, we had a cousin, a young girl who was deformed that uh, had her throat uh, cut by one of these Viet Minh. And in fact, her uncle later on found the guy and, and did the same to him. Uh, so, time. you know, when w once the French were back in control, it took some time to put law and order back in place. Lord Mountbatten had asked, um, first of all, the Gurkhas in to try and put some order and then gave orders to the Japanese that, to say that they were still responsible for all the colonials uh, left in uh, Saigon, that they were, you know, um, basically having to act as police until the such times as Leclerc de Haute-Cloc arrived, uh, who was then representing the French uh, government under de Gaulle, uh, to come and take over matters in Indochina. And that, of course, created a, an enormous amount of uh, dismay. When I went back through the records researching that period myself, a lot of people were quite shocked by the idea that Japanese troops should be rearmed to wash the Viet Minh and protect the French and the Viet Minh had been fighting the Japanese alongside the Allies. It caused a great deal of confusion at the time and of course the Viet Minh would go on and become the Viet Cong um, at a later day war. Indeed, the, the one key point that is mentioned in mm. Ashes from Annam, my book, is that the Japanese general who was using the family home as his headquarters when he left at the end of the war, he, he, uh, he said to my grandfather that, you know, uh, you may have won this war, but there'll be a smaller and a bigger war yep. will arrive, will follow. And this is because obviously the Japanese had been fermenting this anti-colonialism and uh, the desire for independence from uh, colonial rule. And he realized that uh, it was going to start uh, at a small scale with uh, terrorism and guerrilla warfare. And eventually it became an, a full-blown war with uh, the whole world involved. That's uh, essentially what happened. And in between all this was Mephisto, the dog. Oh, right, yes. Tell us I about mean, Mephisto. I had to include that because, of course, you know, it's a fascinating story when the family had to leave their house and then there were, you know, all the French families had to leave their homes and were incarcerated uh, in single rooms, in, uh, be it uh, in a factory or a house or something like that. So you'd have one house with maybe ten families in it. But um, my mother was allowed to keep her dog, Mephisto, it was a Groendal breed, very rare. But, um, and of course, uh, in one room with the dog, uh, the dog needed exercise. 
And uh, one night my mother let the dog out and uh, when Mephisto returned from his 20-minute stroll, uh, he was all terribly excited and the family couldn't understand why. And eventually they found this message had been tucked under the collar and it started, this started some sort of correspondence with someone outside of the camp and um, became really a saving grace, something for the family to keep them going, knowing that there was somebody outside looking after their affairs. And they were receiving advice, you know, don't go here, don't go there. That's right. The Japanese have been spotted up here. That's it. Which is interesting uh, because uh, to this day we still do not know who it was that was sending the messages. And of course Mephisto was the only uh, <laughs> animal who would have known. But I, all the people, including the servants, the chauffeur and so on, that uh, Mephisto met afterwards, uh, there was never any ex uh, any excitement to suggest that oh, this, was, this was the individual that was uh, sending the messages. So it remains a mystery to this day. Now, you've spent 30 years in Cambodia and that came about, as I understand it, your mother received a request from King Norodom Sihanouk asking for uh, help in reconstructing Cambodia at well, yes. almost at war's end. That's it, but this actually started a long time ago in the 1970s when the family returned to England and my mother was an ardent anti-communist. I should add that she worked for the French military in, from 1945 to 1947 in Saigon before leaving for Ceylon. And then, of course, in Ceylon, we had the same problems about the anti-colonials uh, and all the rest of it. So in the end, we were back in uh, England, uh, a country that my mother had never been to before. She was um, French. She was being French. And your father was English. English. And uh, she got involved in politics and started eventually two committees with the assistance of some lords and MPs. Uh, one to do with refugees because the first boat people were arriving and um, the issue had to be handled. Um, refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos. And uh, secondly, of course, was the political thing. Uh, if You must remember it's still the Cold War. So was, uh, she was an ardent anti-communist and she uh, was all for free uh, Cambodia, free Vietnam and free Laos. Cambodia being the first country to, of course, get assistance from the United Nations to become a democracy. Uh, the other two countries uh, have not yet started. So that's how it, it began, but that's in 1975. So we didn't get have uh, the Paris Peace Accords in October 1991. And then post that, of course, Cambodia has been completely uh, uh, destroyed. I mean, there was no infrastructure, no, uh, no nothing. I mean, uh, no roads, nothing. It was a failed state. It was a complete disaster. Mm. So um, because uh, my mother had been working with King Sionok for since the 70s and trying to help bring democracy to Cambodia, uh, obviously the next sensible thing was to try and bring investors in to um, help rebuild the country, which is when I turned up and came here with uh, some um, investors to see what we could do to help rebuild the country. What, were you, what was your initial take? What did, where did you go first? 
Uh, the first visit, of course, the idea was uh, agriculture. I wanted to do a banana plantation. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of research and met a few companies like Dolls and Fife's um, who were keen. But we were up against a big problem of infrastructure and it was too costly uh, to put a factory or to plant anything because there were no roads and um, transport was very important. So um, it took some time to actually find a couple of projects that were worthwhile. And one was the jute mill in Bannambong, built by the French in the 60s with British equipment, making uh, rice bags out of jute. And uh, the other issue was, of course, there was no electricity. So we, we opted to also do the power station in Bannambong to get it going again, so that uh, the local area had electricity. And these are really essentially were the first two projects we worked on. Right. Now, more recently, you were in CM Reap for the Writers and Readers Festival promoting Ashes from an Arm, which uh, should be out within the next month or two. Yes. It's about to hit the presses. And you completed a trip with myself uh, where we travelled from CM Reap to uh, An Long Beng, Pray Vahir, Stung Treng. Ban Lung, Sen Moniram, Mei Mot, Kampong Cham, and back to Phnom Penh. How has the country changed and how has it not changed over the last 30 years? Well, 30 years, it's a massive change because the first thing is, of course, roads. I mean, before there were no roads, no bridges. You had to put a car on a canoe to cross the river and it was just tracks and trails. A lot of them just bombed out. So uh, just seeing roads is something amazing to see. But uh, one should add that 30 years ago, the population of Cambodia was only 7 million. It's more than double that now. We have, uh, we have a road system based on the old French system. Most of them have just been resurfaced. That's all with new bridges put in place. But it's helped um, uh, the country develop, in, especially agriculturally, um, all around the country. A lot of plantations out there. Yes. Rubber. Rubber, cashew nuts. If these are new, uh, uh, I would suggest the cashew nuts are new plantations. The rubber plantations have been around for some time, but they've been extended. Um, and of course a little bit of tobacco as well but uh, that would have been trading I'm sure would have continued with Vietnam between Vietnam and uh, whoever at the time was controlling Cambodia right I mean there's a, there's a lot of activity down the uh, eastern frontier near the Vietnamese border uh, traveling north-south yes well yes well that's the example and I, I would suggest the Ho Chi Minh Trail might have been the beginnings of all that and, uh, Particularly so, between Snor, which was a yeah. town that one American officer once said they had to destroy to save, yes. and uh, yeah, right the way down, there's um, there seems to be a lot of poverty, but there also seems to be a lot of activity, and there's an awful lot of uh, four-wheel drives, brand new cars plying those streets. I mean, indeed, and um, I mean, essentially, it's most of it's to do with agriculture and cross-border trading. And of course, as these towns develop, the land prices are going up. So the local farmers sell the land and that gives them liquidity to expand their operations or buy a new car or whatever it is, you right. know. But it's, it's a dramatic transformation because uh, 
one has to add that all these areas had to be demined as well. Yep. You know, that's taken the best part of 30 years too. And I'm, I would even suggest some of the denser jungle is still very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. There's that 12-kilometre strip right across the northern frontier and heading east, and they haven't touched the forest there, thankfully. Mm. Uh, much of the forest has been stripped to make way for plantations, and I'm not sure that's a good thing at all. But the forest is so dense up there, they leave it intact because it helps control uh, the movement of people across the borders. They simply can't penetrate that, and that forces them into using... Uh, yeah. Uh, the road systems and uh, where they can monitor that That's kind it. of uh, activity. Yes, but um, despite all of that, there's still, you know, the cross-border trading is still quite uh, important uh, on a daily basis. Uh, for Kompong Cham, about 10 years ago, there's about 80, between 80 and 90 tons of fruit mm -hmm. and vegetables coming into Cambodia from Vietnam. So every day, so there's still that going on, right. you know, and I guess uh, that makes part of the development of the local economy, as we've seen with the roads right up to the borders are all now tarmacked, whereas 30 years ago uh, the tarmac roads stopped on the Thai side and on the Vietnamese side. Mm, the rest of it was red was dust. Just dust, just <laughs> dust, yes. Uh, given your family's history in Indochina, I mean it stretches back to uh, before World War II. I mean, we're going back, I guess, almost 100 years, 2022, almost. Yes. But uh, what were your impressions visiting places? Uh, the grave of Pol Pot, who led yes, the Khmer I'm Rouge and pray the here and the ancient temples and seeing all this in a, 20, from a, in a 21st century context. Yes. Well, I mean, it begins with, for me 30 years ago when Pol Pot was still alive in the, in the, in the jungles of Pai Lin. Yep. And he couldn't get to Pai Lin by road, but I got quite near to a place called uh, Nom Sam Bao, which uh, was a place that the Khmer Rouge you know, killed quite a few people, uh, throwing them off the, the top of this mountain. And it's a... It's a a very interesting moment then for me, in so much as I saw, you know, some Khmers walking around, but they'd lost their mind. They'd seen too much and were mentally gone. And that was really my first um, contact with the effects of, uh, of the uh, Khmer Rouge regime. In a society that was... Uh Deeply traumatised, some would argue, yes, still is. Still, yes. I mean, um, who wouldn't be? I mean, uh, there again, they, you know, you, you have whole families gone, disappeared, written off. Mm. Maybe I'd be lucky to see find one or two who still survive from from their own families, all gone, and they don't even know what happened to them. So it's. Uh, it was a very strange feeling, and even in Siem Rip, I had to fly to Siem Rip, and the place was empty, Anchor Wat was empty, the whole food chain had gone, it was so quiet, not a bird to be seen, anything there. But there, you'd see somebody, you know, trying to sell watches, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where did those watches come from? But, you know, people who'd been murdered, you know, so you have Rolex and 
you know, Vacheron watches and so Vegas on. And, and I, I just couldn't bring myself to buy what, any of them uh, yeah. because I thought this belonged to somebody and it's since been massacred. Yeah. Did, at any point, did you have to reconcile anything personally in the sense that uh, your mother's story and what you've witnessed since is almost the legacy of the same group of people who were contesting the control of your plan, your family's plantation, yeah. back in the end of back at the end of World War Two. I mean, the Viet Minh were there; they were trying to get control. They were the forerunner of the Viet Cong. They did a deal with the Khmer Rouge for a long time. They uh, worked together until the split, but they were all born out of the same, basically. Ho Chi Minh when he wanted uh, an Indochina federation run by his communists. I mean, it, it sort of all ties in there. Yeah. The personal and the and the, your personal story and your mother's. Well, um, the family right now story. Today. Yes, indeed. Well, I mean, it goes back from the first from 1887 when uh, my mother's grandfather arrived. Mm -hmm. Her father was born in Saigon, as she was. Mm -hmm. So you've got a certain family history, everything went well, and then you have the Second World War, which really changed everything. And you have to remember the Second World War, countries like England and France, who previously had been the countries that controlled much of commerce and so on on the planet, uh, soon became second liners because the Americans and the Russians had, uh, overtook them. Yep. Uh, why? Because, of course, the, their contribution to to the Second World War in destroying Hitler and, uh, and 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 the Japanese Empire, so they took over. So you've got you add that it's an element of history, a changes in history and the evolution of history, and the family is in the middle of all of this. And then suddenly you go from one war, the end of the, the Second World War, into into some uh, terrorist banditry uh, situation, uh, which then led to another war, and the yeah. Indo-Chinese War, which uh, saw the removal of the French in the end, and and the removal of the Americans as well, strangely enough. Mm. So all this went on for quite some time, and then of course you got the refugees, and the refugees come back to their old colonial masters, you know, seeking help. And this is what happened to my mother. It's gone round in a complete circle. And so the first boat people arriving in England, they saw my mother's name in the newspaper and found her and asked her to help, help uh, explain what was happening in Indochina to the world, uh, to help explain, you know, what the communists were doing and so on, and, uh, and to help the refugees, so, which is, exactly what she did uh, and uh, by setting up these committees in the House of Commons. Right. Now, after your parents left Indochina and went to uh, Ceylon. My where, mother did. Right, where you were born. Yes. And uh, you had similar experiences there, which... Uh, well, uh, indeed. Yeah. Yes, I mean, the thing is, yeah, I mean... Um, the winds of change. It was Macmillan, Prime Minister Macmillan of mm -hmm. England. So this is the late 1960s. Yeah, 60s. You know, it's, um, it was a fait accompli. I think again, going back to the 
the Second World War and the fact that um, England and France uh, were no longer number one, but right. uh, number two, and uh, America and Russia had taken over in terms of influence. Yep. Um, in terms of influence worldwide, commercially and politically. So, um, and this... But again, uh, you had a 30-year conflict that was starting to erupt in Sri Lanka, and which then had in Ceylon, similarities with yes, um, Indochina and what happened here. Yes, exactly, and it just uh, developed over the course of time. But again, the first issue was, uh, let's get rid of the colonials. Um, but locally in Ceylon, you have this... Uh, uh, division between the Buddhists and the Hindu, the Sinhalese and the Tamil. And um, of course, as soon as the British had lost control and left uh, Ceylon, um, then another war started between these two factions and lasted for 30 years. And then um, you, you went back to England, completed your schooling, and then uh, a stint in the military some tours of Northern Ireland. Yes. Your, your background is quite extraordinary, and I am pushing that a, a little bit because I think it lends a lot of credibility to your book. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, the family... My father didn't want to go back to England, but uh, after two years of travelling around uh, Asia and um, east coast of Africa, soon realised it was going to be very difficult to find somewhere stable to live and hmm. restart. So uh, after two years, they decided to go back to England, I and mean, that was it, you know. And that was 1969, and uh, I was sent to school in 68, uh, so, uh, and had to restart uh, their life in, in, in the UK. Um, and that's about it, really. Uh, for me, uh, my education, uh, I didn't go to university straight away. I decided to join the army. I was very lucky. I had a, quite an interesting time uh, in the British Army, 1st Battalion Royal Regiment of Fusiliers in the intelligence section. And yeah, two tours in Nor Northern Ireland, uh, training in uh, Kenya, and um, also stay in Cyprus, a sovereign base to Kenya, and with the UN in Nicosia, uh, Israel, and Bermuda as well was thrown in. <laughs> Just uh, in old Passel. So actually, very, uh, very, very action-packed, three and a half years. <laughs> then I went to university, which, uh, you know, and uh, both in England and France, in three years, two degrees in three years, and came out penniless, basically, and uh, which then um, made me look at the city, the square mile, signed it up, uh, being a broker, basically, mm. for an English firm called A.J. Beckel, which is now um, Bruins, and uh, was headhunted and became an expert on Australian mines and worked for various Australian brokers right up to, well, 1991, Paris right. Peace Corps, when uh, I got the message from my mother that uh, Cambodia was looking for investors' investment. And in 1991, there was a recession in the world. Their business was very difficult anyway. So I thought, well, I'll give it a go and come and see. So your family life had basically gone you know. full circle. Uh, yeah, you enough. were back, to where, back. Yes. from where it had started. Now, I understand you're planning at least uh, another two books. Uh, well, the second one will be on Ceylon because I think there's a story very similar 
to the one that happened uh, to the family in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, issues that very few people uh, know about or realize happened. So I think there's enough material really for a second book, similar one on, on Ceylon, Sri Lanka. And then, of course, the third book would be uh, uh, the 30 years I've been here in, in Cambodia in terms of seeing a country develop from nothing and um, you know, all the consequences that go with it. Given your recent travels and your family's history in the region, what is your outlook for Cambodia and Indochina? We are living you know, in times of uh, the pandemic. Uh, a lot of people have had their say. What's your outlook for uh, the regional economy, security? Well, how do you think it's, how do you see it stacking up? We're looking at the, the world in its entirety. It appears to me that at least the next decade or so, Asia is the place that's still got some expansion to go. Uh, you look at India, um, you even look at uh, Cambodia will be dragged along into this uh, expansionist uh, in the next uh, decade or so. Mm -hmm. And China has uh, really now for the first time been flexing its muscles uh, because it's uh, arrived at an apex whereby it can start to influence the world on issues. And uh, it's taken her the best part of uh, 25 to 30 years to develop. So now she's uh, flexing her muscles in Asia. Um, it's, it's, uh, history will repeat itself. I, uh, my fear is that uh, if uh, they do want to start a war or something, I think the the, the conclusions would be worse than any other war we've had before. That's my only fear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the outlook can be uh, pessimistic given the state of affairs. It's, um... No, so yeah, getting back to Asia and Cambodia. Cambodia, yeah, it is developing rapidly. The population has doubled. But uh, she's still got a long way to go in terms of education to catching up. But um, I think you'll see a lot happening with um, Russia, China, and uh, India. Yeah. And on that note, uh, Thierry, good luck with the book. I, I think it's a terrific read. And unlike other war books, it's, uh, it's a type of book that can be read by children of all ages. Thank you. Yeah. Good luck, and thanks very much. Thank you very much, much Luke. Thank okay. you Cheers, very mate. Much. Cheers.